Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. R is for reality. Reality was recorded and produced in New York City's Looking Glass Studios and co-produced by Bowie and Tony Visconti, consisting mostly of original compositions. The album also includes two songs written by others, the modern lover's Pablo Picasso, as done by John Cale previously, and George Harrison's Try Some, Buy Some, as done by Ronnie Spector. Wonderful yeah, song. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, these two tracks were originally slated for Bowie's never-recorded Pinups 2 album from the early 70s, alongside the VU's White Light, White Heat, uh, which the ditched version of which was gifted to Mick Ronson on Play Don't Worry. He was also supposed to be doing God Only Knows for Pinups 2, wasn't he? Which is a terrible version, which he ended up doing on Tonight. Mm, yeah, but he also talked about trying to placate Brian Ferry, who was doing Another Time, Another Place. He told Brian Ferry that they would do a Roxy Music track on there as was well. That right? But he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Bowie started writing the songs for reality as the production of his previous album, Heathen, was wrapping up. Okay, there is a thought, actually, that reality is a good album. I don't know where you stand on this, Bob. Uh, But it was perhaps a little bit rushed. And I remember at the time just talking to people, and we reckoned it was probably because Heathen was such a brilliant album. I was just going to say that. It kind of lives in the shadow of Heathen, this, I think. Yeah, and uh, do you know, I mean, David had been through a little bit of a rough patch, you know. Mm. I mean, he came back with ours, and, you know, there were, it was just one of those periods whereby even Earthling, a great, great record, yeah. uh, got some stick, didn't mm. it? Uh, but if you, you look at Heathen, the critics loved it, mm. and it really was great. Yeah. And you could tell that Bowie was uh, relishing the fact that he was back in favour with the critics, and his fans were all pretty united in thinking it was a killer album. Mm. And so I think he thought, right, I'm going to strike while the iron's hot. Well, it was almost like a return to how we worked in the 70s, wasn't it? Yeah. Famously, Hunky Dory straight into Ziggy and the rest of it. Thought, if I'm on a roll, this is where I used to work, so let's do it. And it's a good album, but yeah. it's not a great album. Anyway, some songs he wrote pretty quickly. Fall Dog, Bombs the Moon was written in 30 minutes, he said. Other tunes like Bring Me the Disco King was a song that Bowie had tried his hand at as early as the 1970s and tried again with Black Tie, White Noise in 93, as well as Heathen in 2002. Uh, talking about the album's title, Bowie said this. I feel that reality has become an abstract for so many people over the last 20 years. Things that they regarded as truths seem to have just melted away and it's almost as if we're thinking post-philosophically now. There's nothing to rely on anymore. No knowledge, only interpretation of those facts that we seem to be inundated with on a daily basis. Knowledge seems to have been left behind and there's a sense that we are adrift at sea. There's nothing more to hold on to. And of course, political circumstances just push that boat further out. Wow, OK, uh, pretty deep then. So uh, just a quick look at the personnel, shall we? Yep. David Bowie, of 
course. Vocals, guitar, keyboard, synth, lots of stuff, including sax. Yeah, Jerry Leonard, guitar. Earl Slick, his old mate on guitar. David Torn, guitar. Mark Platty, bass guitar and guitar. Sterling Campbell on drums. Mike Garson on piano. Gail Ann Dorsey. Catherine Russell, both doing backing vocals. And then you've got your additional personnel, Tony Visconti on guitar, keyboards, bass and backing vocals. Yeah, Matt Chamberlain, drums on Bring Me the Disco King and Fly. Mario J. McNulty, additional percussion and drums on Fall Dog, Bombs the Moon. Carlos Alomar, guitar on Fly. Okay, so let's have a look at the reality tour, Hmm. uh, which is a worldwide tour by Bowie in support of the album. The tour commenced on the 7th of October 2003 at the Forum Copenhagen in Denmark, continued through Europe, North America, Asia, and included a return to New New Zealand and Australia for the first time, Mark, since Glass Spider in 87. You're joking. No, oh, it's all to prove to be his final tour before his death on January the 10th, 2016. The tour grossed 46 million US dollars, making it the ninth highest grossing tour of 2004. Now, he'd announced it, uh, the tour itself, in June 2003, intending to play to over a million people across 17 countries, and it was billed as his first major tour since outside in 1995. I didn't realise this. So, at over 110 shows, the tour was the longest of Bowie's career. I didn't realise that no. either. And it, uh, Well, you know, I mean, it does have a uh, an upshot by the look of it. So, mm. one of these shows was on the 17th of November at Manchester Arena. So, Mark Ratcliffe and I, OK, we were still on Radio 1 at the time. Yes. And as was the case a couple of times previously, uh, when Davey was in town, he'd drop by and see us. He did the same when he played at Lanky Cricket Ground. Yes. You know, and sometimes he came to see us just specifically, which is amazing. Oh. But he arrived early, okay, and he, and he waited upstairs in our office until it was the right time to come and join us. Right. And we're, like, still thrilled that we got Bowie yeah, mooching yeah. about upstairs. And it turns out that he was romping around the office, messing about with things, okay? <laughs> so there was loads of clobber in that studio yeah, because yeah. Uh, in, the, in our office because we just used to gag about all the time. Mm. So there'd be things for making sound effects. There'd be, like, guns, you know, toy guns. There'd be masks, all kinds of things. And there was a Viz annual up there as well. Mm. We knew that much. Yeah. Um, And uh, when Davey Bowie came down to visit us, he brought the Viz annual with him. Right. And he's a massive fan of Viz, Okay. He he absolutely loved it. And there's a great shot of him and me and Mark Radcliffe and Bowie sat in the middle just reading Viz. Oh, I've seen it. I know it. But I can tell you that on the days, people were filming it. And we're thinking, right, okay, so what's this going to be? And it transpires that it was going to be an extra DVD with the reality tour DVD. Right. And it was just going to feature Bowie being Bowie during the day. Not Bowie, Davy Bowie superstar. Davy Jones, if you like. Yeah, just quite informal. Yeah. yeah, and it was following him in the van. Apparently, there was some great footage of him in a petrol station and stuff, just Fuck. goofing about. And there was all the footage of him upstairs rifling through our drawers and stuff like that, you know, <laughs> and messing about. And then it also, I believe, there was footage of uh, David and us in the studio. And I was thinking, I'm going to be able to actually have a document of meeting Davy Bowie wow. rather than a photograph where I look really fat and sweaty and can't even look at it. <laughs> and um, and but somebody somewhere, oh no, oh no, oh. Uh, deemed it to be kind of a, too much of a debunking of the Bowie myth. Oh come on, that makes the myth all that stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, God, it's not so. It's not his sense of humour isn't no, no, no. Everybody knows what Davy Bowie's uh, sense of humour is like, and of course, the Glastonbury show is being released on DVD. Yes, so maybe right. now, maybe it's like, all right, you don't need to keep any of those plates spinning. You don't need people to think that David Bowie doesn't walk anywhere. He just floats everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And maybe, maybe this footage will come out. I would dearly, dearly love to see this footage, even just what 
watch it, let alone own it. Yeah, you're not alone, Mark. Imagine people who want to see that. I mean, for me, that's where all the real gold is, in the really unexpected moment, the so-called ordinariness of life. That's when you find out about people. Just like that camera crew following Bowie and Frampton round uh, Madrid, wasn't it, on the Glass Spider? That's just great. Yeah. Yeah, just going up, people coming up for autographs, everything spontaneous, off the cuff. It's just, it's gold, that stuff. I can't remember, actually, also. I used to, I've still got them somewhere. In fact, they're at work, but the heel fell off, both of them, within the space of about 10 minutes. But there's some Chelsea boots, right? Really big winkle pickers that I used to have whilst I was in the fall. Right. And I've just kept them all those years. And yeah. I was in doing a, a Mickey Take podcast of Bob Dylan. Right. And so I put them on in lieu of having any cowboy boots. Yes. I remember the fact that I had them on the table whilst David was sat next to me, possibly on this particular occasion, oh. maybe on a previous one, but in my might have been this occasion. And, uh, and there was loads of little toys, like the little Pink Panther toy. Right. And various little figures all around, about two inches high maybe. And I remember Bowie, whilst we were talking, he just grabbed me Chelsea boot and he grabbed the other Chelsea boot and stuck one in the other. Right. Okay, so it almost looked like a, you know, what a, a cobbler uses to yeah, polish it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looked like that. And then he picked up the little toys and placed them on the soles of the upturned right, Chelsea boot. Okay. And he went... Good day, isn't it? It's a work of art, that, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, it's amazing that, David. But, you know, we didn't have mobile phones at the time, so I didn't take a photograph of it. Oh. But I still had the little toys, and I could have replicated what Bowie had done because it all fell over at some point. And yeah. gone, that is a, 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 a David Bowie work of <laughs> An art. An original. Yeah. An original. But, the, yeah, the, even the Chelsea boots, the, the, the heel did fall off and both just after I did the Bob Dylan podcast. It might have been the evil spirit of Bob. I know he's not dead, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what he's like, though, that I Bob. know what he's like. But uh, also on that day, I do remember... I remember that my sister came in and met uh, David and then me and Tina and my mate Mick, Mick Billings, who's a massive, massive Bowie fan. And we all went over to the MEN Arena Mm. for what proved to be the last time that he played. Yeah. And we watched the sound check and that was where, and when we walked in, I remember him going, uh, he went, Tina. And he went, he said, la, 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 la. And then, uh, and but he didn't know who Mick was. Right. And then, so on the on when we were going on the way out, when they were finishing the sound check, we walked down to the front and across the front of the stage where the barrier is. And I, and I just said, "Right, we're going, David. Thank you. We'll be back later." And I said, "This is me mate, Mick." And he went, "Mick, nice to meet you, mate." And Mick's like, and Mick actually said to me, "He said, do you know what? You've been next to me uh, at two of the greatest moments of my life. One was when City won the Premiership. Man City won the Premiership for the first time. Mm. And don't look like that, Bob. And uh, and the other one was meeting <laughs> Bowie. So uh, it was an absolute pleasure, Mick. Okay. Oh, I'm jealous on both fronts, there, mate. I really, really am. That was a great night. What a show that was. It was was fantastic. Obviously, I didn't go to the soundtrack. I just went to the gig like a normal punter. Sorry, mate. Now, as for the performance, Bowie sought to perform in the format of a stadium concert with less focus on elaborate staging, more focus on just the musicians in his band. The stage featured a number of platforms, some extending out into the audience, as well as multiple video screens projecting images and live footage of the gig, along with many other coloured lights for effects. Okay, so tour incidents. This is... Yeah. Yeah, this is where it really takes a turn. Okay. So we didn't know it at the time, did we? But this was really effectively the beginning of the end for David Bowie live. That's right, yeah. On the 6th of May 2004, a performance at the James L. Knight Centre in Miami, Florida, was cancelled after lighting technician Walter Thomas fell to his death prior to Bowie going on stage. 
There was also the incident of the show in Oslo on the 18th of June 2004, which saw Bowie being struck in the left eye with a lollipop thrown by a member of the audience. Photos of that are so weird, aren't they? Well, they're weird, but it also kind of misrepresents it, as far as I'm aware. The photograph makes it look like the lollipop lodged in his eye. Yes, But I think the photograph just caught the moment that it hit his eye. Mm. So he's got his eyes shut, and there's a lollipop, and it looks like it's just hanging out of his yeah, eye, but, yeah. but it's not. I think he just hit his eye and bounced out again. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it hurt him, he, and he was really miffed, apparently. Yeah. And obviously, you've got somebody who did it down the front, mm. would have been a massive Bowie fan, and will have just been wanting to have some kind of weird little connection with him, but it, it hurt him, and he wasn't happy. Yeah, why do that? Uh, anyway, originally scheduled to play in 24 countries over a 10-month period, the tour was curtailed after the Hurricane Festival performance in uh, Schiesel in Germany, on the 25th of June 2004 as a result of Bowie being diagnosed with an acutely blocked artery that required a surgical procedure. In 2016, bassist Gail Ann Dorsey, who was on stage with Bowie that night, recalled what happened at the end of the tour. So this is what she said. At the second to the last show in Prague, I remember we were playing the song Reality. He was supposed to be singing at the very end of the song and he wasn't. I was kind of watching him from behind. Everyone was soaking wet because it was really hot in there, but his shirt was just drenched. He was just soaking wet and holding the microphone out with his left hand straight out. And he was just standing there, posturing, but not singing. And I was thinking, why is he not singing the last bit? Right, she continues, uh, Then he looked over his shoulder at me and he was just white, pale, translucent almost. His eyes were wide and he was kind of gasping for air a little bit, having trouble catching his breath. And then I remember looking down at the audience and I could see their expressions in the front row, looking up at him, uh, had changed. She continues, They went from joy and dancing to looking kind of concerned. At that point, his bodyguard and helper guy saw the same thing. He ran onto the stage and took him off. We went back on and played a few more songs. He asked for a stool and he sat down. He just hated to cancel shows. There were some nights when he was so sick, he had a bucket on the side of the stage where he'd go between songs to puke, but he never wanted to cancel anything. And we didn't know he was having a heart attack until four or five days later. Traumatic stuff. Absolutely. So she carries on here talking about the last show at the Hurricane Festival in Germany. She says, "Uh, I remember walking down the stairs behind him after we finished. When he got to the bottom, he actually collapsed. He was so tired and so sick. They rushed him to the hospital and we sat and waited in Hamburg for a few days. And that was the end. The last show. Just tragic. This just puts me in mind we need to go back a few weeks uh, before that event. So um, myself and Michelle, Michelle Chowdhury, my producer, and a guy called Jim Simmons came along as Mm. well from Six Music and we interviewed David uh, at a hotel on the South Bank in London. And it was to prove to be uh, almost the last interview that David ever did. He did a couple of little little other bits for uh, the press and I think he might have done a radio programme with Courtney Pine. Right, Okay. Which I haven't heard. But the interview that I did with David was, uh, and we've talked about it before, um, was pretty much the last thing he did whilst he was working. Okay. Mm, yeah. Uh, and of course, nobody saw what was uh, around the corner. And he was great. He was dead relaxed. And uh, I mentioned he went into the Pete and Dud thing and he was going on about forming a super group with John Lennon and Paul yeah. McCartney called oh. David Bowie and the Beatles and all that. <laughs> and he was really thrilled about the news that they'd found a seahorse in the Thames. Mm. He was great. Didn't want to talk about the tour at all, really. <laughs> He's probably up to there, isn't he? Yeah. But I did say to him at one point, you've been on the road for a long time. You must be knackered. Yeah. Uh, well, I said tired, actually. Right. And he said, uh, tired. He looked a bit frosty. He went, tired? Tired? Why tired? And then he went, I'm 57 and I can still hold a pen. Right. And I was like, well, all right, David, but it is a long time. And he went, mm. uh, no, it's fine. But he did. I'm not just saying this. He did look 
pretty ashen. Right. He didn't look a picture of health. He really didn't. Uh, and I wouldn't say that if it, if it wasn't true, you know. And when he actually had the heart attack a couple of weeks later, I was absolutely gobsmacked and completely surprised by it. But just thinking about his complexion on the day, he didn't look a picture of rude health, yeah. put it that way. Although you wouldn't know from the interview because he was on such great form, wasn't he? He was absolutely brilliant. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. R is for rock. Mick Rock. So Mick Rock, born 1948, is a British photographer best known for his iconic shots of rock legends such as Queen, David Bowie, Sid Barrett, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop and the Stooges, Geordie. <laughs> That's great to throw in there. Uh, the Sex Pistols, the Ramones, Joan Jett, Talking Heads, Roxy Music, Crossfade. Who's oh, I that? love his picture of Crossfade. Whoa, oh. Got it on the wall. Thin Lizzy, Motley Crue and Blondie. Often referred to as the man who shot the 70s, most of the memorable images of David Bowie as Ziggy Stardust was shot by Rock in his capacity as Bowie's official photographer. What a lucky man. Mm. In addition to his work with Bowie, who he met in early 1972, more of which in a bit, Rock is also noted for creating iconic album covers for Sid Barrett's The Madcap Laughs, Lou Reed's Transformer and Coney Island Baby, Iggy and the Studios' Raw Power, Queen's Queen 2 recreated for the uh, video for uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and Sheer Heart Attack and the Ramones End of the Century. And it's uh, well documented that he took the photographs for Transformer and Raw Power in two consecutive nights, didn't he? Yeah, King's Cross Cinema. That's right. Okay, so uh, talking about the famous Queen shot, Rock remembered that they wanted to hire him to grasp some of the decadent glam sensibility of his work with Bowie, Iggy Pop and Lou Reed. Subsequently, in his brief from Queen, he was to have a black and white theme for Queen 2 artwork. According to Rock, the group were looking to grab people's attention with the cover, especially since the first album had failed to do so. And he said uh, they realised that if you could catch people's eyes, you could get them interested in music, describing it as a 
sort of a knockoff of an old Marlena Dietrich shot, the photographer took inspiration from the cover from a still of the actress from the 1932 film Shanghai Express. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So although Queen almost rejected the photograph because they felt it too pretentious, Rock convinced them otherwise. It made them look like a much bigger deal than they were at the time, but it was a true reflection of their music. Yeah, it's a great shot. Of course it is. As for Transformer by Lou Reed, the shot came from a Mick Rock photograph that inadvertently became overexposed as he was printing it in the dark room. Rock noticed the flaw but decided he liked it enough to submit the image for the album cover. Carl Sturker, who also shot the first three Roxy Music album covers, took the back cover photo of a woman and a bloke. The man appears to have an erection, although Reed has said this was actually a banana which he'd stuffed down his jeans before the photo shoot. Mm. So uh, he was the chief photographer on the films The Rocky Horror Picture Show, Hedwig and the Angry Inch and Shortbush. He also produced and directed music videos John Amoni Dancing, Gene Genie, Space Oddity and Life on Mars for David Bowie. Of course he did. In November 2016, Rock did a new edit of the Life on Mars Bowie video for Parlophone Records, released as part of the promotion for Bowie Legacy, which is a collection of Bowie's uh, best singles. Rock said, I had a little jewel and I wanted to polish it into a state where it was an absolutely perfect gem. Modern technology, which obviously we didn't have when I made the original in 1973, helped. I believe I achieved my goal. And that is, uh, you know, when I went into the uh, V&A, we've talked about it lots, but oh. that was that was one of the things that really just stopped me in my tracks, you know, to see the Life on Mars suit yeah, wow. with, the, with the platform shoes and the tie, and uh, that really was one of those <gasps> moments. Didn't uh, Kate uh, Moss recreate that, didn't she? And did she complain that she found it really hard to get into the suit? Giving you an idea of how skinny Bowie was at the time. Yeah, I think that she, she tried a few different things on, actually. And, yeah, uh, yeah and, and she struggled getting into him. Yeah. He was tiny. When his book Psychedelic Renegades was being published in 2001, he managed to convince Sid Barrett to personally autograph a special series of 320 books. Barrett had left the music business for good in 1974 and had lived privately ever since, declining all interview requests and all contact with any of his fans or people from the music industry. I remember when Genesis Publications announced that and I was on their email list and they sent me an email and I did think, oh, I'd love that. And it was about, I think it went for about 395 quid, didn't it, those 320 copies. Wow. And I ummed and ah and thought, no, I can't really afford that stretch. But now it is worth a small fortune, as you'd imagine. You can imagine that, yeah, mate. Mick Rock has published a series of books, among them Glam and Eyewitness Account, forward by David Bowie on that, Psychedelic Renegades, the Barrett one, as mentioned, Moon Age Daydream, about Ziggy Stardust with Bowie, Killer Queen with Brian May and Roger Taylor and Raw Power, Iggy and the Stooges with a foreword, of course, by Iggy. Talking about his career, Rock said, I've never felt like a voyeur, although I've certainly done plenty of looking. I work from the inside out. Like a cook, I gather all the ingredients and keep mixing and stirring and tasting until the kind of effluvia starts to rise. And then I'm off to the races. It's an addictive kind of feeling that I need a regular shot of, otherwise I don't feel quite right. Oh, nice way to put it. Yep. In 2017, Rock took part in a documentary about his life and career called Shot, the psycho-spiritual mantra of Rock. It's dedicated to the timeless genius of David Bowie and Lou Reed. Uh, Rock explained to Rolling Stone, they made an important contribution to the development of my own sensibility. When I was having trouble, they both helped me out financially. They bought my prints. When I was in the hospital for my heart bypass surgery, the first flowers that were there waiting for me were from Lou 
and from David. Not only were they my true friends, they were also my true heroes. There was a Mick Rock exhibition at the uh, Ibis, okay, yeah. uh, which is now the Football Museum in mm. Manchester. And I remember I went with um, Trace, and I think the kids came. Yes, the kids came. Yeah, I well. went to that, yeah. Right. And uh, we went into the shop, and I just heard this really strident voice <laughs> coming from a corner just behind the counter. And uh, it's not a great impersonation, but the, <laughs> the strident bit of it probably worked there. But it was, it was Mick Rock. He was sat there. Uh, it was the opening that we, oh, okay, that we went fine. to, and I have to say, Mick, there was lots of choice language. Was there really? <laughs> yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't even. He, he was. He wasn't being animated or angry. He was just talking to somebody about something. But there was a lot of colourful language in there. So I don't know if Mick uses uh, colourful language just in his daily language because you know some people do, don't they? <laughs> they do. Yeah. I mean, I don't. Oh, no, you don't. Oh, neither do I. But I mean. Some people do, as you say. I mean, uh, interestingly, he says that. I mean, I've interviewed him a few times and he never swore. Well, again, I bring the worst out. He's probably talking about me. <laughs> you frassum, grassum, arsehole, <laughs> this, that and the other. <laughs> but anyway, he didn't know who I was, so oh, highly well. unlikely. Anyway, this is your interview with Mick Rock in 2008. Mm. Yeah, he said that, I can't remember it well as I was heavily dosed on morphine, but when I was having my heart bypass a few years ago, I was singing rock and roll suicide as I went under the anaesthetic with a huge grin on my face. Regarding my relationship with Bowie, I think I was just very attuned to the times. He wasn't very well known when I first met him. There were probably about 400 people there at Birmingham Town Hall in the beginning of March 1972, but I was completely fascinated with him. I did a little interview with him, uh, that was for the Adult Monthly, Men Only, and he'd already recorded Starman by then. I think David saw it as the ultimate follow-up to Space Oddity. Yeah, he carried on. He said, uh, even though they were only small audiences, Bowie was projecting very big. Considering the Ziggy Stardust album was recorded some months before he made it big, he's just projecting like mad. But you can see all that star stuff he was projecting. Then Starman, Prettiest Star, Moon Age Daydream. He wanted it bad. He really, really did. Uh, he carried on. At one point when I was interviewing him, he said, you know, I'm so focused on what I'm doing, Mick, that if you were to come and tell me my best friend had just died, I'd probably say, oh, that's really sad, and then go right back to work. That was how he thought of himself. It was important for him to be a star. Wow. Uh, and again, just continuing, there was something unique about him. He was like a bloody Martian. When we got together, there were three specific subjects that always cropped up. One was Sid Barrett, who David was fascinated with, especially as I'd taken acid with Sid, and he'd gotten to know Lou and Iggy when he'd been in New York that December to sign a deal with RCA, so he bonded over those three names. Fair enough. He says, I made a few videos for David. There was an original one for Moon Age Daydream, which was like a collage, and then John and Only Dancing and the Gene Genie, both made in America on that first tour then of course life on mars was released as a single in the summer of 73 the video production values are all minimal all born of necessity there was no budget at all but i was going for anything in those days i shot life on mars in a day at earl's court i loved hunky dory but there was something about life on mars that really got me i still couldn't tell you what it's about but that's art it was a song that absolutely sold me on david bowie it triggered me towards wanting to write something about him and take some pictures as a result of that meeting our relationship developed from there it caused a lot of change in my life and that came afterwards from iggy and lou to queen came in the wake of the stimulation provided by that album and specifically life on mars so really what he was saying there he's kind of owes his career to Bowie in that fateful meeting. Well, you of know? course he does, yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, I did interview him uh, a few times. I know you have as well. So in 2009, so it'll be a year after that last one, we were talking about the significance of uh, the Ziggy and the Spiders rainbow gig in August 72, where Mick Rock again was there and he took all the photos. He says, um, I was running about organising slideshows of Von Chian and the Lou, the film, uh, Brunel film. I filmed some of it and I took stills, 
Coupled with the shot I took of David at Oxford Town Hall, see Omar. Yep. Uh, the timing couldn't have been better. Certainly on the east and west coast of America, the places where you could buy Melody Maker, everybody picked up on it. In 1972, there was a certain underground quality to things and how they happened. Lou and Iggy was still very much part of that. And then there was Mott the Hoople, who'd done four albums for Ireland that they couldn't give away. So there was this whole coterie of failed musicians that David touched. He was recording Mott and Lou at the same time. You know, June and July 1972 were very potent months for him. Yeah, he said, after Oxford Town Hall, everything got very strange and interesting for David. The audiences grew very fast. By the Rainbow Gigs in August, he did two nights, which he obviously... Couldn't have possibly done before Starman. Dead right. Nobody did what he did in terms of all those mutations. I always regarded David, above all else, as being an artist, and I think that's how he saw himself too. But he was an artist who wanted to be a rock star. He definitely wanted both. He had huge ambition, but wasn't obnoxious about it. He was kind of sweet, really. I like that last sentence. <laughs> it's yeah. great. Uh, another time, we just got talking about his very, very early days and his uh, relationship with Sid Barrett and Pink Floyd. And he says, I wouldn't have been a photographer at all if it hadn't been for LSD. I first picked up a camera when I was a student at Cambridge on an acid trip. I did take one acid trip with Sid Barrett and a fun affair it was too. He was quite relaxed on LSD with Sid, smiling a lot. I first met him in December 66 when he played the Cambridge Arts College Christmas party. He was this incredible figure bouncing up and down while the other members of the Floyd were sort of anonymous. Right, OK. So that was something that uh, impressed David Bowie hugely, wasn't it? It was indeed. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. Art is for Riley, Mark Riley. No, 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 it's not. It's Rupert the Riley. Oh, I always get those two mixed up. Rupert the Riley is a Bowie song named in honour of the car that he had when he lived at Haddon Hall. Now, as detailed in Nick Pegg's complete David Bowie book, on one occasion he stalled the car outside Lewisham Police Station and left it in gear by mistake while cranking the engine. Uh, this caused Rupert to lurch forward, the result being that Bowie ended up in Lewisham Hospital. In an interview in 2003, Bowie explained, It stalled outside Lewisham Police Station one day. I had really long hair in those days, so I was standing round in front of the car, trying to pump it back into life again, and all the cops were at the windows laughing at me and the bloody thing started up and I'd left it in first gear and it came at me. The crankshaft went through my leg and I was pumping blood like a fountain and I broke both my, well, I cracked both my knees as the bumper had kind of got me pinned to another car and that was just behind it. I sold it as soon as I got out of Lewisham Hospital. The most fortunate part is that it was a police station where I broke down. I was bleeding profusely but their medics were on the street in about 30 seconds flat. I mean it sounds like a comedy incident but I'm sure it's pretty painful by the sound of it. Yeah. The incident caused such a stir that Bowie was interviewed in hospital by DJ Chris Warbis, who worked for Lewisham Hospital Radio. Wow, can you imagine that? <laughs> God, if to have that, that'd be amazing. In the same interview with, uh, this is the interview in 2003 now, with Dominic uh, Mohan, Bowie goes on, he said it was an old racer, the car. I think it probably goes back to the 30s or something, and a mate of mine and me had put it together not very well as it happens. And there is, of course, a great photo, a few photos of Bowie in the, uh, well, it was a Riley Gamecock, wasn't it, the car? from around that time and he's there with his long hair and his little Casey Jones cap nice and a flouncy shirt just messing about on the engine uh, this now from the Pushing Ahead of the Dame website Rupert the Riley the silliest and most endearing of Bowie outtakes is Bowie's ode to his car a 1932 Riley Gamecock with its sound effects nightclub saxophone and its droning engine of a piano bass and hummed backing vocals it could be a rough mix from Roxy Music's first record 
Okay, the track was another go at crediting a fake rock and roll singer. Bowie had already tried out Freddie Baretti, alleged lead singer of the Arnold Corns, and now gave a song to the character known as Mickey, or Sparky King, whose stage name, at least for uh, this unreleased single, was Nick King. Now, this is a strange story, this one. So yeah. King was part of the Bowie circle in the early 70s. In Bowie's words, he was a club boy who I encouraged to sing. King lived brightly, dangerously, and not long, because around 1974, he was stabbed to death by somebody allegedly hired by one of his lovers, a colonel, who King was attempting to blackmail. He left behind only this happy ghost of a song. That's really dark, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Uh, recorded 23rd of April 1971 by the Nick King All-Stars and never released, though it made the shortlist for Bowie's greatest hits, rarities, box set, sound and vision. There are two versions, one with Bowie lead vocals, the other sung by the late Mr King, with Bowie on backing vocals and saxophone. Also, Herbie Flowers was on bass, Mark Pritchett on guitar, and Barry Morgan from Blue Mink uh, was on drums. I think as well, isn't there a sample of, um, was it Mark Pritchett? I think he may have taken the exhaust... Uh, off or modified it somehow and then somebody drove off down Beckenham High Street so they could just get a bit of an ambient buzz to it as well. Uh, did I think, they really? I think. I read uh, recently Woody Woodmansey going on about Mick and Woody were in a car yes. going towards a gig at Leeds mm. with Bowie mm. and they're in a taxi actually and they had a sign saying Leeds that way Hull that way and they just had a quick discussion and decided to bin David Bowie yeah. not bother so Bowie went off did the show in Leeds on his own and they went to Hull yeah. and, and left Bowie and went back to doing the rats. Right. Um, but yeah. he, they said that uh, Bowie was travelling up there in the Riley. And Woody said he was a terrible driver. He was always <laughs> crashing it. Right. Always crashing in the same car. Yeah. Also, is that one of these guitar players called it a noddy car, didn't they? Yeah. If you have a look at it, it is, well, it's a, it's a classic, but it's old. Yeah. And the lyrics leave a bit to be desired, don't they? Obviously, it's a bit of a novelty tune, this. Who'll ride in my Rupert the Riley? Ride on for mile after miley. I'm the greatest driver. Sit by my side. I'll drive you so wild if you sit by my side. See how far we travel. Take hold the wheel. I'll drive you to hell if you hold the wheel. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. Recorded and edited by Howard Nock. With social media graphics by Jason Reed. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode. Roxy Music. Rick Waitman. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.